Welcome to East Europe's Minorities in a Century of Change, a podcast on the history of minority experiences in Central and Eastern Europe during the 20th century. This series is part of the Institute of Historical Research's Centennial Commemorations, Our Century, Looking Back, Thinking Forward, and has been organized by the BASEES Study Group for Minority History. It was made possible through the help and support of the British Association of Slavonic and East European Studies and the Stanley Burton Center for Holocaust and Genocide Studies at the University of Leicester. The study group is a forum devoted to researching minorities and the national and regional histories of Central, Eastern and Southeastern Europe and promoting closely scholarly collaborations. For more information, please visit our website at studygroupforminorityhistory.com. Today, we'll be talking with Augustin Beretz, author of The Politics of Early Language Teaching, Hungarians in the Primary Schools of the Late Dual Monarchy, and Empty Signs, Historical Imaginaries, The Entangled Nationalization of Names and Naming in a Late Habsburg Borderland. He was born in Budapest, studied Hungarian and Portuguese at ELTA, did graduate work at CEU in Budapest, and has since held visiting professorships at both CEU and ELTA. He has also been a Max Weber Fellow under Peter Judson in Florence, and has held fellowships at the Center for Advanced Study in Sofia, and is currently a Fellow at the Imre Kirtes College in Jena. Augustin, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me on. Can you start by telling us a bit about yourself and how you became interested in this area of history? Uh, well, as you mentioned, uh, I was originally trained as a historian, so I think it was uh, uh, around uh, 1999 that I got interested in uh, social linguistics from a very critical uh, standpoint. That is how uh, standard languages are made, so how it is uh, constructed, all these ideological and power relations that are behind the language that uh, people, most people today speak, language and dialect and so on. And, uh, and that was uh, on a summer language school in Santiago de Compostela that uh, we were supposed to study standard Gallego and uh, I, I got uh, overwhelmed uh, with uh, all this uh, uh, this uh, politicized uh, context of uh, what uh, standard Gallego is and why we should uh, learn it uh, like this uh, very artificially codified language and you can also call a very late case of uh, of uh, a nation building. So then I got interested in uh, literature of uh, nation building, uh, nationalism, and also aspects of uh, social, uh, sociolinguistics. Mm. I'm interested you talk about the, uh, the standard Gallegos being artificially codified because it implies that there are some languages that are naturally codified. Uh, yes. The, um, um, that's a good point. <laughs> yeah, but uh, but uh, you see, it is um, it is a bit uh, still different because there is very very deliberate engineering behind uh, what they have been doing, like very as opposed to all those people where there's no deliberate engineering. <laughs> I think it's interesting how people use the word artificial as a term of delegitimate. Mm-hmm. You say, oh, you know, I, I mean, I, I haven't studied Gallego, but I've been interested in Macedonian and, and in Slovak. And so the Bulgarians will say of, of literary Macedonian or sort of North Macedonian, ah, this is some sort of artificial language, as opposed to 
other languages that are natural. I mean, and it, but it's interesting because it's a slander that works. People do take that badly uh, when they hear that their language is artificial. Uh, yeah, and that, that is uh, part of the problem area that uh, I got interested in, like the discourses about uh, the artificiality of uh, of a newly designed uh, language, like, uh, for example, like 19th century Hungarians used it uh, to delegitimize de uh, this uh, younger uh, standards that uh, were popping up uh, uh, next to them and they were defying the supremacy of, uh, of Hungarian. And then they, they tried to show that uh, that basic is not one language because uh, like an ordinary peasant from the this and that valley won't understand it and they won't understand each other so it's better to actually uh, replace it with their sometimes sometimes they they embarked on this project like with banat bulgaria for example like, mm. they try to prevent them from uh, from getting nationalized in an illyrian original in the illyrian, illyrian direction and uh, then they actually sponsored so it was the roman catholic uh, uh, Diocese of Chana Temeshwar, who originally sponsored uh, uh, engineering a separate Banat Bulgarian language for them. So, uh, but 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 the discourse on this is, is is much wider. So that was part of the area that I was got originally interested in. Mm. Well, both of your two studies are analyzing different aspects of the late Habsburg Hungarian nation-building policy. Um, but I as reading those studies, I was particularly struck by your contribution to the study of modularization. So how did you get to be so interested in modularization? Oh, okay. Uh, let's put aside the concept <laughs> for the moment, uh, because I, 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 don't, I don't think I'm fully board, uh, on board with, uh, with, with the label. And also uh, part of my work, my second, uh, well, with the first book, you can you can uh, claim that uh, because my first book was about uh, how uh, the Hungarian state tried to get uh, schools, minority schools, but but also establishing its own network of schools, how to get them to teach Hungarian, how they try to achieve uh, uh, that uh, the citizenry uh, learns Hungarian to a satisfying level. Like some, like very few people would today call it like would 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 have uh, probably that 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 is a very basic level of nation building that uh, we we uh, now take it for granted that you are supposed to learn the dominant language or the language of the state. But uh, in the nineteenth century, that was part of what uh, many contemporaries refer to as modernization. So I would translate it as uh, as nation building. But uh, with my second book, I think it is broader in uh, broader in scope. So there are uh, there are some aspects of uh, majorizing policies, uh, state policies. There are uh, more like uh, uh, grassroots level practices, policies. But uh, part of it is is about uh, uh, changing the perceptions uh, of, for example, of names of all kinds, like how uh, people started to project uh, ideological, historical imaginaries into, into names along this project, uh, like process of, of uh, na becoming national. Uh, and in, national in, in various directions. So this, these are competing, uh, competing national projects that uh, I mm. focus on. So uh, apart from the Hungarian, also the Romanian, and to some extent, German. Well, I was, I was interested to hear you talk about, um, you know, today we would take it for granted that you learn the state language, because in the context of the Habsburg monarchy, 
it's not entirely clear that Magyar should be the state language. In a sense, there, you could argue that it should be German that is the state language. Mm -hmm. uh, well, uh, my latest uh, project has been on uh, uh, languages in the administration, in all spheres of uh, official life. And uh, there were uh, much debate about the introduction of the of jury trials in the 1880s. And then uh, the problem uh, suddenly emerged. Uh, uh, how can we get those juries to actually understand each other and, and, uh, and understand the, uh, the accused? The, uh, or the, like these were, uh, these were uh, criminal trials. And then uh, just for the sake of argument, there was one uh, very influential Hungarian theorist of uh, nation building, Gustav Bekšić. Uh, who came up with this just uh, as, as a provocative uh, uh, like idea, like uh, uh, if, if we really, because he, he tried to argue against jury trials and, uh, and uh, as, as an ad absurdum argument, uh, he actually argued that in Transylvania, for example, we should then uh, have these uh, jury trials uh, in uh, Romanian. Because that is the <laughs> that, that, that is the that is the language that is uh, most universally spoken, and, which uh, is yeah. obviously self-evidently absurd for his Hungarian colleagues. Yeah, it it it, it was really uh, for the sake of being absurd. But uh, yes, in in Hungary, and uh, th that was the that was part of the original like constitutional uh, change, uh, like that uh, Transylvania became part of Hungary. Uh, mm. That came in two stages. First, uh, for a brief moment in '48, and then Hungarians never accepted that uh, that 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 was again a separate uh, grand principality. And then in, uh, at the time of the Ausgleich, but mm. uh, but yes, in the in the Austrian part of the monarchy, there was there was no state language. You, you don't need a state language. I guess uh, I mean I'm thinking about some of my own research about the the varieties used in uh, state administration. And it's, uh, it's got me thinking that maybe the concept of the state language needs to be disambiguated because the language of the courts and the language of the army and the language of the provincial bureaucracy and the language of the regional bureaucracy, they may not be the same, they can be different. Uh, yes, and uh, in language policy studies, I think state language is not very, is not a widely used term and uh, not very well defined. It, they rather speak about uh, recognized languages. So those varieties that, uh, uh, actually, in uh, in uh, in practice, are used in this or that sphere of the administrative uh, mm. of administrative life. I think it's important, though, also to contrast not only the um, the terminology used by the sociolinguists or the or scholars, but also the languages used by the actors themselves. So I know that uh, in the Habsburg monarchy, it was there was a lot of talk about the Landessprachen or Landesüblichensprachen. And I think, uh, I think um, the, the, the leap from, the, from Landessprache to Staatssprache is not so great. Was there a Staatssprache? I know I've seen discussions. We should have a Staatssprache for Cisleithania. And I'm pretty sure the Hungarians came up with a Alaminyelv or Alamnyelv. Of course, you'll have to correct my not very good Hungarian. Yes, you're you're right, you're right. That was the term used, like Alamnyev. That is a state language, 
and they and, and they argue that uh, it is in everybody's interest to learn the state language. So in uh, in a sense, this uh, kind of uh, uh, spreading the knowledge of the of the of the state uh, was uh, couched as a as an emancipatory project. Mm. But I suppose if we get back to the idea that we must disaggregate the concept of alamnyev and see how the state works in its different institutions. You know, the state in a provincial, uh, you know, the, 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 if the state is embodied in the mayoral uh, police force or the local uh, post office in some, uh, some small town in the Carpathians, then the language of that police station or that uh, post office might not be the official Alamnyev, that might be Romanian or Slovak or anything else. Mm-hmm. There were uh, very serious discussions also on the in the Cisleitanian part of the Habsburg monarchy about how uh, we can efficiently manage uh, to uh, like to conduct multilingual uh, policies. Like and that I, I think that is a that is a, an actual genuine uh, question to raise. Uh, like with the with with the post postal service certainly, although I know that uh, in dualist Hungary there were local postmasters who didn't know Hungarian, but uh, they were required uh, to know. And uh, from the very very uh, early, like from the for the first first years, and it was not even disputed, the language of post stamps became became Hungarian. I imagine that if you work in the post office. Even if you do speak Romanian or Slovak, you can learn the 20 words necessary to read the postage stamps. That was very, very, very uh, funny, actually, with the delivery, delivery guys. Like it was, it was, it was mostly guys who were uh, often illiterate. So, uh, <laughs> by uh, there, uh, actually, it was regulated, and by law, they were supposed to uh, know how to read, but uh, but very often they didn't, and. Uh, and so the way they the way they delivered their uh, their uh, uh, like the letters and parcels and uh, and, and and whatever, so the like postmasters uh, tried to give them directions and uh, and uh, and while a Hungarian state was trying to enforce these uh, laws that they, even the delivery uh, people should know Hungarian because otherwise how would they deliver those 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 parcels? But in a village where like there are uh, like a couple of hundred people that might not actually cause an actual problem. Well, this leads to, you know, one of the things I like most about your research, your work has such incredible detail on provincial actors. In your book on naming and names, for example, you talk about the National Communal Registry Board, which I assume is based in Budapest and is the sort of the central actor. But you also talk about a school inspector in Bihar and archpriest in the Banat, all sorts of provincial noblemen and school boards and all sorts of local actors who are doing something maybe not what the center in Budapest would like. How did you find all this material about these provincial actors? Oh, you're very nice to, to tell this because, and, and, and actually I find this fascinating that uh, so many reviews actually, like reviewers have the impression that I work with the wealth of archival material. And I, I have the quite the opposite uh, uh, impression. Well, uh, to begin with, uh, this is a very, to me, it looked like a promising uh, uh, field because uh, one reason 
uh, people have never actually done this uh, topic like nationalizing Hungary, uh, nationalizing policies in dualist Hungary, because the because the archival evidence was all over the place, and then there was also this language barrier that uh, uh, much of the paper trail is in Hungarian, and it is stored in uh, like Romania, Slovakia, and then the uh, the, the locals should be able to decipher this. Uh, uh, handwriting in, uh, in in Hungarian, so they don't do that. They basically, uh, for their for their own purposes, they use the contemporary Romanian or Slovak press to describe what happened. But uh, the situation is not very uh, rosy, as I found out, because uh, because uh, like the Romanian state archives are not so much interested in preserving this uh, material. They got uh, they took them over at a very late uh, stage from various institutions who themselves didn't preserve this old material, old material from the Hungarian time. So it is very, very patchy. And uh, what happened in Hungary is even worse, because in, uh, in 1956, when there was the revolution and those government uh, uh, archives from the, the dualist uh, times uh, perished, like most of them. Uh, you mentioned uh, you mentioned the National Registry Board that is quite unique in the sense that it was uh, kept in the statistical offices. So that is one uh, font that survived in the, uh, intact, and that this is from one source and this covers one uh, like operation. That operation was this uh, re re baptizing of uh, locality names in Hungary, and it also uh, contains all the material that uh, they received from the local governments. It's actually, actually, I think it is very important what you said that the state, what uh, what what you call the state, we we you understand it is a, is a monolith, but uh, uh, it has uh, it has evolved uh, so much in the nineteenth century. There were uh, there were uh, often like uh, institutions with uh, competing interests involved. So local governments uh, very often they were interested in in. Uh, uh, continuing with the use of the local language. So they were promoting the local language. Sometimes also counties, some counties in uh, Transylvania, these are the Transylvania Saxon counties who went on like uh, doing everything uh, on a trilingual basis. Well, uh, the Hungarian state pr promoted the exclusive use of uh, Hungarian. So this is just a digression. But, uh, but you have this and you have some, you know, for example, uh, right now I'm working on uh, internal colonization projects. And for that, uh, I, I have the whole material preserved because for some, for some reason, it belonged to the Ministry of uh, Agriculture and the Ministry of Agriculture uh, archives have survived. But uh, I, otherwise, I'm in a not, uh, much less fortunate situation than uh, many of my, uh, of my social historian friends are in terms of, uh, of archives. And that is, uh, that is also uh, why I'm doing my research in a rather uh, unconventional way. So in a scattershot, uh, hit and miss uh, way, because uh, when you go out to the archives and you get funding uh, for doing research in like all over Romania, like on this side of the Carpathian, like uh, former Transylvania at large, uh, you should be familiar uh, uh, with the structure of the original archives, so how they were uh, uh, structured, and you're not. And, uh, and, and it is also described in a very hit and uh, random way. So chances are you won't find what you are looking for, but you will find uh, exciting material that you can use for another project. So it is interesting, actually, how much uh, history is shaped by 
which archival funds happen to survive. I know when I was first in graduate school, I was doing some research on Poland and I was very struck by how many people writing about Poland in the 19th century were writing about Galicia. You don't find so many books about Volhynia. It's Galicia, Galicia, Galicia. And then at some point I realized that's because the archives in Galicia are held in beautiful Vienna and everything is well organized and it's all very clean and nice. And if you're going to research Volhynia, you have to go to Ukraine. And in the Soviet period, that was very difficult and, and the archives were very unfriendly. So why wouldn't you go to Galicia? It makes perfect sense. There is a, an, ex, uh, an amazing new book on uh, Volhynia, interwar Volhynia by uh, Katrin Chancha. So she, she, she has done research in, in Ukraine. But uh, it's still uh, much better than uh, uh, some parts of today's uh, Poland, uh, where the, the archives were kept in Warsaw, and they are gone. Mm. One thing that uh, strikes me about your work uh, when I read it is how much it reminds me of Eugen Weber's Peasants and the Frenchman. I think it's because um, you have uh, put so much effort into looking at relatively understudied archives to recreate the peasant world and how it becomes nationalized and Weber does the same. I wonder if you could comment on how you think your work differs from Weber's. How is it similar? How is it different? Well, I, I can see some similarities and you're, you're again very nice for uh, telling me that because that is a very flattering comparison between Weber and me, although it is also quite, uh, in, a sense, in a sense, outdated. It is still a fascinating read. Obviously, it was also a trendsetter, like with this cliched expression of peasants into everything. For, for decades, uh, like people who, who embarked on studying nationalization in this and that context, uh, they were always like writing the history of peasants. Actually, actually in, in my Slovakia book, I have a footnote where I say, uh, Weber's title is very influential, for example, and then I just listed all the sources I could find, any book or any article, or any book chapter where it's peasants into whatever. And then uh, a scholar of Chinese history actually cited my book just for that footnote. So that footnote got me a citation from Gina Tam. <laughs> but I interrupted true. you. It is true. It also uses a very facile, uh, like kind of, uh, it, 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 it has this... Uh, this idea of uh, like his book, uh, certainly we can we can agree on this. It is a history of uh, of successful national integ integration, mm. and mine is a history of non-integration. Uh, but also the way he saw this uh, uh, nationalization problem has been overwritten by the by the last uh, like four decades of research. So. He, he, he saw it as more or less a kind of a, a one-way story, like uh, peasants as simple vessels who are filled up with uh, modern ideas uh, uh, through various channels of uh, uh, modernization, and part of it is uh, being Frenchmen. So, uh, and, 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 and this is uh, not the way they see it uh, today. So uh, he, but it's, he it's also he not the way it happened in our part. No, of the no, world. no. But uh, he didn't credit <laughs> those peasants with much, uh, much agency. Not to mention, actually, that already at the time, Charles Tierney pointed out that he was also quite selective in his, uh, like he, he went for the regions apparently that were the most backwards and uh, the most out of the way. And actually, yes. So the the situation was. Uh, uh, so it it didn't quite happen on. Uh, 
in, in that short time, time span as, as, as Weber described. Well, I mean, I don't have a problem with him emphasizing the backwards areas because it makes his story the more dramatic. How did these backwards areas come to the modern world? Mm -hmm. Let's study that case study France. It's fantastic. Um, I mean, I, I think generalize that. Well, there's lots of things in Weber's story that don't generalize, but I think um, you know the. I mean, the basic story is peasants into nationalists. You have peasants, and they don't have a national sense, as Weber very eloquently describes, and as uh, Zahra has pointed out with her uh, by popularizing the phrase "national indifference." I mean, uh, in a lot of ways, Eastern European study has uh, reinvented uh, Eugen Weber's wheel by by starting to study national indifference and people who are indifferent to national claims. Um, you know, Weber was a French historian. He was only thinking about France. And so he's imagining we have peasants and they enter modernity and modernity is France. And maybe in the context of French historiography that works. But when we have these competing national concepts in, in our part of the world, um, you know, Frenchman equals modernity. It doesn't work the same way. You can't just say Romanian equals modernity Hungarian equals modernity, German equals modernity. You have competing modernities and they fight with each other. Yes, and, uh, Weber was simply not interested in uh, how far uh, nation, national consciousness is situational. So in what uh, roles and what contexts and what domains of our lives does it actually, is it actually relevant that we are national? Because he was studying like, uh, like a, in a sense, uh, one-dimensional uh, context. So there were no competing offers. And so he could go uh, with the, with the uh, assumption that uh, those peasants became like French, Frenchmen, and in every moment of, uh, of their life. And then they, they became kind of the same Frenchmen as the French intellectuals, like the, the ones who were, uh, who were producing uh, nationalist discourse. Yes, everyone became a mini Sartre, a mini Camus, smoking cigarettes at a cafe. <laughs> that, is, that, is, that is where I think this, uh, uh, all this uh, discussion of national indifference is, is very, very useful. Like it reminds of uh, what Rogers Brubecker uh, described, like how how nationhood happens. Mm. So you have you need you, you need some long term structural change in order for it to happen, but it doesn't happen all the time. That's right. Well, we agree on uh, Rogers Brubecker being extremely useful, but if I could go back to one more contrast between your work and Weber's work. In, uh, in Weber, the, the emergence of French, the, the transformation into Frenchmanness is um, a sort of a liberation. The, it's a positive step. The peasants become modern, they enter the modern world. Isn't it wonderful? And the process of modernization in Weber's telling is essentially a success story. But much of the scholarly literature on modernization is, uh, is a debate about how oppressive the Hungarian policies were. The, you know, some Hungarian scholars write apologia and say modernization is, is uh, you know, is emancipatory and uh, a liberation. But the Slovak, Romanian, Ukrainian scholars, by contrast, often paint the Hungarian regime and modernization as the blackest tyranny and this terrible, terrible yoke of oppression and so forth. Uh, so your work doesn't seem interested in that at all, but rather focuses on effectiveness. I wonder what you have to say about this. Oh, 
that is uh, quite a lot to unpack <laughs> here, I think, because again, there, there are some things that I, I, I'm not, uh, I can't go along with. Um, well, contest my I'm, my claim. I'm interested know? in I'm interested in effectiveness, but the effectiveness of what? Because it is I think it is quite obvious that uh, uh, majorization, if you want to call it that, that that was not what was not a success story. So there were there were some uh, pockets of uh, populations who like became majors in a sense, but uh, it is quite controversial whether uh, it was it it had anything to do with this uh, with these policies whether it wasn't uh, rather spontaneous, obviously. So, uh, well, a side note, a long side note on uh, majorization then, because uh, I, I, I have problems with this on multiple levels. Although why I, I use it all the time, because I use it uh, as a technical term. Like when you majorize your, your name from Schneider to Kovac, like that is obviously majorization, just uh, technically. And uh, the same uh, majorization was uh, 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 also, at work when they when they majorize the Valia Lunga to Bega Hosu Papak. And then it is a majorization of something. And, and also we can we can describe this this whole program ideology of uh, of dualist Hungarian state nationalism as a majorization because that, that replicates the contemporary usage. The problem is that contemporary usage was amb ambiguous. So it could stand for so many things. And uh, especially in retrospect, it becomes kind of a weasel word, sometimes an ideological cudgel, like basically because that is in that uh, that is a very uh, mm, appropriate uh, term to um, retrospectively confuse uh, designs, discourses with policies, with regulations, and those with outcomes. So. Uh, sometimes you mentioned this. I'm, I'm, I, I don't. I don't think I have such a bad idea. But uh, uh, like uh, obviously, th those kinds of uh, of uh, uh, that kind of historiography was still uh, mainstream. The, the like Romanian or Slovak uh, in the time of the national communist uh, regime. So in the 1980s. Now I think the situation is uh, is much better. Uh, probably uh, it is still mired in, in ideological uh, discourses, uh, like uh, uh, framing this, uh, this problem. But, uh, but sometimes they actually implied that uh, uh, majorization was something that uh, made majors uh, on a mass basis. Uh, I don't know if you, if, if you are familiar with that, there was a, uh, an emigre millionaire called, uh, well, I think the Josef Dragan, or Konstantin Dragan, and he sponsored the publication of uh, one uh, uh, late uh, 19th century Hungarian guide for the name majorizer. Uh, he got it translated to all European languages and uh, he published it with a machine uh, fabricating majors on the cover. It is quite uh, complex, uh, so let me unpack this. So originally there was a guy who himself uh, majorized his name from something to Telkesh, and he wrote uh, a list of uh, new Hungarian names that he just suggested uh, uh, people who are interested in majorizing their names. That was connected to this uh, majorization as a social movement, which got many uh, like uh, tens of uh, thousands of people involved, uh, Jewish and, uh, and Christian, like German, like Gentile uh, 
uh, people of German backgrounds and uh, also Slavic backgrounds. So there was this, uh, this huge uh, uh, trend of uh, modernizing their names. Now it already got this, uh, this book uh, already received kind of a, a twist when the Ministry of the Interior uh, sent it out to the counties that uh, kind of promoted uh, 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 the modernization of names. And it was a very thinly veiled uh, uh, kind of uh, instruction uh, for uh, uh, like the local administration to kind of uh, try to push their uh, underlings to majorize their names. So this is the first uh, twist uh, it receives. And then there is the, the second twist in, the, in a very uh, adverse reading. It can actually become like, um, obviously uh, this guy who uh, who put out these uh, translations didn't assume the so the the effect uh, was not in uh, people actually reading it so it didn't imply reading it because if somebody read it then the picture was quite different but uh, just putting out something like uh, how to I don't know what the title was but uh, what the book uh, that was an original document so not a forgery and uh, just this framing with uh, machine fabricating Magyar so that is that is kind of a, a a uh, very dubious uh, uh, pedigree for the word uh, modernization that, uh, that it got after the fact, because uh, um, at the time, like they were, uh, I, I, think, I think we can connect it to, the, to these debates that are going, uh, going on about russification. The russification is also a very contested uh, term. And, uh, and so now there is, a, uh, there is an, a strand of research that tries to uh, like uh, extricate its various uh, meanings. And they will talk about obrusevanie, uh, uh, so this kind of uh, spontaneous, also the administrative uh, aspect. And uh, uh, I think uh, it can work very well also with, uh, uh, with respect to dualist Hungary because uh, they try to uh, create a homogeneity uh, to replace this diversity also of official practices. So in a sense, it was it also had its instrumental and symbolic sides, but mm. uh, but it was in a way repainting the surface into into Hungarian, and that that was very very uh, important for the contemporaries. So the Magyar nationalists that was important that uh, that uh, a foreigner who comes to Hungary uh, has the sense that this is a Hungarian land, even if no uh, Hungar no no foreigner would uh, would uh, would know Hungarian, but uh, they 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 notice that the inscriptions are not in German and not in many languages, but they are in Hungarian. So that is a kind of a that that was one of the uh, the emphasis that uh, that that they wanted out of out of this and then there is also the imposition of of hungarian this and then then we can debate how far it was an assimilationist project because because i see i see uh, it kind of a the precipitous like a, like a not entirely uh, honest uh, offer of modernization if it Mm. Can call it call it like that because uh, what I see is that was it was uh, it was meant to be and it was meant to be in a sense uh, inefficient, and uh, and as long as it was inefficient and uh, and people didn't actually like kids generations generations of kids didn't actually learn Hungarian, and uh, it was even counterproductive, but it sustained this uh, this role of uh, uh, this. Uh, Major supremacy that 
on the peripheries just meant uh, the rule of the Magyar gentry. Over I the think it's, it is important to think about how the meaning of Magyarization depends on where you go. I mean, if we talk about the desire to create millions of Magyars, if we buy the peasants into Magyar's hypothesis, then, you know, in the Alföld, there's all sorts of Hungarian-speaking people who don't view themselves as Hungarian, particularly because they're nationally indifferent peasants. And then the Magyarization process turns them into Magyars. And hey, look at all the millions of Hungarians we've created. Magyarization is a great success. But then if we go to, uh, to uh, Transcarpathia or we go to, uh, uh, you know, Romanian parts of uh, Transylvania, then the whole purpose of uh, Magyarization is to remind the bloody peasants that we Magyar aristocrats are on top and don't you forget it. Mm -hmm. And the, there's, no, there's no, ap no intention of trying to welcome them into the, uh, to the Hungarian community. The whole point is to uh, reaffirm their subservience. Yes, there is uh, much symbolic violence involved. And uh, in a sense, I see it's uh, more oppressive than assimilationist or Magyarizing. Even because obviously, there, uh, to some extent, it was a legit, leg, uh, legitimizing uh, ideology. This, uh, this, it was also kind of uh, two minds about it whether it was uh, meant as assimilationist, but uh, but it oppressive certainly it was. Well, if we compare then the modernization policies in Transylvania to the Russification policies in Russia or Germanization policies wherever or to the Verbian model, but if we focus particularly on Transylvania, which you've spent so much of your career working on, what does it tell us about the unique nature of nationalism in Transylvania? Probably it will tell us about the infrastructure, ethnic infrastructure, but uh, uh, I don't really think that, because it is again complex, if, the, if you don't do uh, draw a parallel uh, with uh, Russian policies, then uh, within the Roman Empire, we have to make this twofold distinction between uh, uh, the territories that they consider to be Polish and uh, the Western gubernias. Uh, so uh, in, in, in Poland, uh, I've just read a, a, a new German monograph on uh, uh, these Russian nationalities policies in the Vistula land. And uh, it was quite obvious that uh, even the uh, uh, state officials themselves uh, distanced, uh, distanced themselves from the idea of uh, Russification and they were, uh, they were pretending that uh, I think they were, uh, they were genuine uh, about this, that uh, when they didn't uh, let uh, uh, school kids uh, study, like schools to to teach uh, in uh, Polish, they were actually containing Poles. So they were containing Polish nationalism. So they, they weren't trying to make uh, Russians out of them, which would have been preposterous because they are Catholics. And uh, uh, so they were uh, just uh, uh, implementing uh, obviously very oppressive uh, uh, policy, but it was uh, in order to contain them and uh, not in order to turn them into anything. Whereas in the Western gubernias, they, they had the impression that that is uh, un uh, disputed early uh, Russian space. And so uh, then the uh, thrust of, the, of these policies were to avoid uh, Lithuanians, uh, Belarusians, uh, Ukrainians to turn into Poles. Because uh, well, it, it gets back to the, the question you mentioned earlier about the language dialect issue. 
you know, if you if you are uh, if you're uh, Hungarians in Transylvania and the peasants speak Romanian, then you can't really say that Romanian is just sort of a dialect of of Magyar, and we need to Magyarize them in that way. Mm-hmm. Whereas in in Russia, if you look at a Ukrainian or Belarusian, you can say, ah, it's just a dialect of Russian. Why don't we welcome them into the great Russian fold? But then if you think about the distance between two standard varieties, the difference between languages, you can reach these ambiguous cases. So I know from my own work on Pan-Slavism that there's plenty of people who saw Russian and Polish as the same language because they saw Russian and Polish as dialects of Slavic. But you're saying that the Russians looked at Polish and they said, okay, these people cannot be one for the Russian nation any more than Romanian peasants can be run for the Hungarian nation. We have a Russification policy to keep them down rather than a Russification policy to assimilate. That refers to the period after the second uh, Polish uprising. I don't know which, uh, because probably when you mentioned this, that there were people who who thought uh, the two languages were one, you are referring to, to an earlier period. Well, I, it is true that I am very unfashionable and that I'm interested in the <laughs> 1830s and 1840s. You know, it seems to me that, uh, you know, people say I'm interested in the Habsburg monarchy. It's always the 1890s. And <laughs> nuts to the 1890s. 1830s is where it's at. <laughs> but it, it is fascinating that uh, uh, I, I also read books about Panslavism. Panslavism, like this uh, uh, intellectual trend fashionable with uh, some Russian elites in the 1870s, well, let's say. And the, then, pans, and then, the Pan-Slavism I'm interested in is not Russian expansionism. Oh, okay, okay, I'm okay. interested in something else. I'm interested in the Habsburg Pan-Slavism that Jan Kolar promoted. And so that's a, that's a different thing altogether. Yes, it is a different thing, but uh, uh, <laughs> I want to relate to the, to the letters, so the, to the Russians, and, and just want to, want to mention that uh, they would include everybody in the, Rus- in the Pan-Slav fold except for the Poles. So with the, with the Czechs, it is not a problem that they are Catholics because the other, the other issue I see here, it is not that there, there are no dialect continuous. So you can't uh, pretend that uh, any Romanian dialect is a uh, dialect of Hungarian. Although with mixture and hybridization, it actually uh, framed as, uh, as something like that is in between. <laughs> so in this, uh, so from the Transylvanian point of view uh, to the north-west, uh, you have this uh, Satmar uh, uh, Silage, Silage uh, uh, area, and there you have uh, uh, lots of reflections uh, on local Romanian dialect that would uh, present them as some kind of a mixture because they use so many Hungarian loan words. But uh, from a linguistic point of view, this is rubbish, obviously. But uh, yeah. I, think, I think we should be very careful about using the phrase from a linguistic point of view. I found a quotation once by the American linguist Sapir, the famous Sapir of the Mm -hmm. Sapir-Whorf hypothesis, that Sapir. And Sapir, his quotation is, so long as two languages have any relationship whatsoever, we are justified in calling the one the dialect of the other. So if you take that attitude, never mind Polish being a dialect of Russian or Russian and Polish being dialects of Slavic, like a Russian and Polish can both be dialects of Welsh. I mean, we're all Indo-Europeans here. We can show that there's an Indo-European relationship. Uh, we're all just speaking dialects of Welsh. That's the linguistic point of view, according to Sapir. Oh, so okay. uh, I'm such a, such old-fashioned that uh, when I refer to linguistics, I I, I actually I have what I have in mind is the Sosurian uh, Bloomfield uh, Bloomfieldian linguistics. 
It does seem to me that a lot of linguists who say something like, well, from a linguistic point of view, X, and it's a way of trying to attack other linguists because you can find plenty of linguists who say the opposite of X, whatever X is, but never mind that. Let's go okay. on to your, uh, your next let, work. No, let's get back to let's get back to this because you uh, you were inquiring about uh, about the nature of uh, of nationalism and uh, uh, what I see specific to Transylvania and that uh, that is something that it doesn't share with other very fashionable like Transylvania is not fashionable but uh, there are some fashionable scenes and contexts that uh, uh, has poor historians uh, study uh, where you don't have this. Uh, Okay, you have uh, uh, non-related languages that are spoken next to each other, but usually you have a, a higher degree of uh, bilingualism than in Transylvania, which was very asymmetrical. And uh, so asymmetrical in the sense that uh, uh, Magyar peasants tended to speak uh, Romanian, but it didn't work uh, the other way around. And then you have con confessional boundaries. So this combination and that overlap with, uh, with this home language uh, thing, obviously, that is again uh, not as clear cut like this home language uh, concept of home language, but uh, I think if if I want to name one thing that makes it uh, quite unique, then it, it is this kind of uh, kind of structural uh, infra infrastructure that made uh, uh, nationalism maybe more likely, uh, more plausible than in other contexts because you had uh, you had. So the, the terms had existed for centuries. Uh, maybe not so much Magyar, to call somebody who is a Calvinist, but who is not a nobleman. Magyar, it was uh, not entirely uh, customary in the early modern period, but uh, for Romanians like uh, Vlach or, uh, or Olach, it was, it was quite, quite obvious who, who they refer to when they uh, when they refer to somebody of the of an Orthodox background uh, and who speaks uh, Romanian because they were mostly monolingual, so so I see I see uh, a difference here, uh, like in contrast to let's say uh, Styria and mm. the local Slovene uh, German issues. Well, I think the. Um... The, the attention you want to pay to infrastructures and state structures, I understand is guiding your current research about rural people's adherence to national movements. Is that your new research project? Can you tell us about that? Mm, that is a prospective, uh, uh, prospective uh, project, but we have to uh, find funding for that. Uh, that would be, uh, that would uh, focus on um, a connection that is much understudied and entirely out of fashion, probably, but that uh, that harks back to to very old uh, concerns uh, from the from the side of Marxist historians about uh, how uh, this uh, national mobilization uh, uh, could step into uh, social discontent, uh, discontent. and uh, uh, in the nineteenth century, increasingly, what I see is that uh, social uh, gets equated with, uh, so uh, these social contents uh, uh, very often can emerge uh, in a state framework. So they, as if, as if, as if uh, social uh, uh, grievances can go back to a state action, uh, probably more than earlier, because there was this uh, very uh, intensive uh, penetration of state structures 
that we can see very nicely in the second half of the 19th century. Like even uh, if you look at how far uh, taxes uh, rose in that period, like uh, several times in the span of a few decades. And that is uh, true for, for uh, the Kingdom of Hungary, but true for also for other, uh, other contexts. So uh, there is this uh, potential that uh, states created by, let's call it that way, modernizing, but I would rather uh, stick to this more technical uh, description of state penetration. And then there is also uh, one other aspect, uh, uh, another layer to it, is that uh, this preemptive uh, framing of this context in ethnic uh, uh, terms. So, and that is again very, very conspicuous. If you if you just read uh, how Hungarian uh, state administrators, like uh, seniors, like on a ministerial level, were actually they were expecting. Uh, uh, this and that measure to trigger uh, responses, and uh, those responses they already kind of uh, saw as inherently uh, national, like national meaning uh, uh, minority nationalist, and mm. uh, and that uh, that was a self uh, fulfilling uh, prophecy. But uh, what I see uh, uh, from the sources. Uh, when you see any alignment with the minority nationalist uh, languages, minority nationalist uh, contents, uh, that is mostly uh, when uh, there is some provocation coming from the state or something that they can uh, relate to the state. So, uh, but uh, what I have uh, been working so far, uh, those were uh, openly nationalizing uh, state policies that, uh, did not necessarily provoke a response from the peasantry, but sometimes they did. So, and that, that I, I was uh, very interested in finding out what exact uh, policies the peasants, like ordinary people, but in my context, those are, my context, those are mainly peasants, uh, reacted to. And what I see is, for example, this renaming policies can to some, uh, sometimes they leave uh, uh, ordinary people entirely indifferent. So they will just laugh at it because it doesn't, uh, doesn't uh, interfere with their lives. But uh, when they themselves in the, in the papers are referred to an entirely new name that they, don't, they can't even recognize themselves the way the state uh, deems to keep track of them, like that is a, another issue altogether. And uh, uh, I didn't uh, include this in, 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 uh, in my book, but uh, there is some evidence that uh, this is something that uh, at rallies, for example, people uh, um, resonated with as, as a grievance. And also like there was this campaign of uh, uh, renaming localities and then two, two thirds of the, of the local governments protested. And that is an other issue altogether that uh, sometimes uh, it is quite funny that they try to make use of uh, nationalist language like uh, minority nationalist language and they, they, they don't, they are not up to the task, <laughs> simply. So then this is just an unanticipated, when it comes as an unanticipated challenge, then, then, then they can't uh, uh, just come up with, uh, 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 with an entirely consistent nationalist uh, uh, response. Uh, so, um, it so is I, a mistake to assume that nationalists will be, will be internally consistent. <laughs> uh, even even elite nationalists, but then John Breuer mm. writes about popular nationalism, and uh, he focuses on uh, Western Europe. But uh, he describes this uh, this very ambiguous relationship with uh, 
with the masses uh, and the nationalizing uh, elites. And uh, sometimes it is, a, it is a mutual kind of uh, duping, <laughs> so to say. Yes. Well, I think we are running out of time. So as a final question, where can people go to learn more about this topic? Oh, uh, you mean uh, 19th century uh, Hungarian nation building or Transylvania? I was thinking about nation building generally, but I suppose you can interpret the question as you like. But uh, isn't the whole series supposed to be about nation building? Well, um, I think that you already mentioned that uh, when we uh, when we speak about uh, uh, dualist Hungary, then many of the probably the first results that uh, on, on Google that you will find, especially if the books are quite old, then you can assume that uh, they are at least somewhat propagandistic. But uh, but uh, um, in, the, in the last uh, 10, 20 years, there has there has been like a, a burst of. Uh, of uh, uh, new literature that is worth reading, I think, in major languages. And uh, you are more fortunate if you read uh, German. Probably there are more uh, uh, good books in, in German. But uh, what I would suggest uh, uh, to get a sense of the, this pageantry of, of Hungarian nationalism triumphant, uh, and also its discontent, is uh, Balint Varga's book. Uh, on the monumental nation, which came out in uh, Berkhan. It is actually in the same series as, uh, as my second book. Uh, there are books by Robert Nemesh. There is a fascinating new book uh, by Thomas Lorman on uh, the Slovak Catholic movement. And that is uh, obviously, it was born out of uh, the Hungarian uh, uh, Christian socialist movement. Uh, and then became just a splinter group, so this Flinka uh, uh, and uh, company. Uh, but uh, I, I think it uh, it also uh, gives a very good, like the first part of the book that uh, that takes place uh, in dualist Hungary. It will also give you a very good sense of uh, of these uh, nation building policies and also the system of surveillance, because it describes uh, how the Slovak uh, Catholics uh, try to create their own network of uh, associations and how the the Hungarian state uh, uh, tried to uh, undermine this, but there were also limits to what they could do. Yes, actually talking about uh, Transylvania, there is a case Hitchens, I think it is quite relevant and, uh, and good. It is another question how uh, uh, easy to source uh, his book on the Romanian national movement is, <laughs> but it is a solid, uh, solid scholarship. And uh, yes, we can't, uh, we can't uh, ignore uh, uh, Rob Rogers Brubecker and uh, their, their book on, on the Cluj Kolozsvár, probably. Yeah. That is a must. And speaking about uh, Transylvania, also Sorin Mitu's uh, book on uh, the uh, uh, early generation of uh, Romanian nationalists in Transylvania. That is quite an old book, but a very good one. Mm. Well, there's a lot of food for thought there. Well, I've been Alexander Maxwell, and this has been a very interesting conversation. Thank you for your time, and I hope we'll see you again. We are at, how long has it been? Um, we've been talking for an hour and two minutes, uh, but I think there's a little bit that's recording. I think you should stop the recording now. Mm -hmm. Oh.